I'll have you stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Psalm 19, beginning with verse 7. This will be one of our stopping points today, but it's a, it's a good one. It's a good launching point for us. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And we ask for your grace and your mercy to help us in our time of need. Lord, help us to understand your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, the five solas, the five pillars of the Reformation. And specifically for the one that we are going to look at today, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone is our final authority. And we look to it, Lord, and and we look to you now. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So on the inside of your bulletin is a place you can take notes during the sermon time, if you will. I really encourage the members of Central Baptist to do that as we come to the prayer meetings on Wednesday night and we review the sermon. It's so helpful to have these things written down so that we can quickly recall them and and, uh, work together on those nights as well to remember the truth. So... Last Sunday, we began a five-week sermon series on the five solas of the Reformation. Some of that might be unfamiliar uh, language to you and terminology, but we'll get into that today and hopefully make sure that everybody's on the same page. But the reason that we're doing this is back in the uh, November annual elders retreat when Joseph and I met together to pray and to plan for this New Year, we thought, wouldn't it be great if in January we hit the reset and the regroup button and we we just took some time in January to, um, you know, reset our our focus and our compass and our direction for the new year. And and wanting to do that, we, we, we said, what how could we do that? How could we best do that? And the idea, I believe it was Joseph's idea, was to to go through the five solas of the Reformation, or these these, uh, five mantras of the uh, Reformation. And then we looked at the calendar and we saw, hey, there's five Sundays in January. We thought it's meant to be. (laughs) So we're going to take each of the five Sundays in January, and another part of our vision was to have five different preachers. So... You don't have to listen to me every week. We had Joseph last week, me uh, this week. Next week, we'll have Aaron Stevens, followed by Pastor Jesse from Lawson Baptist Church. And finally, in uh, week five, we'll have uh, Carson Meyer. So it's going to be a great time. So what are these five solas that we're going to be studying this month? Well, Joseph kicked it off last week with, we are saved by grace alone. Okay. 
So what are these five solas and why should we take an entire month to study them? So the word sola is a Latin word that means what? Only or alone. And the five solas are the key components of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is more than, than uh, just the, uh, the, the cry of the Reformation or, or the, uh, you know, the, the five things they were passionate about back in the 16th century. These are the five major pillars of the gospel, okay? So this is important. This is at the core of what we believe as a church. So when we study the five solas, we're talking about the gospel message itself and the, the core components, the key components, what the gospel breaks down into. So let me give you a succinct statement of the five solas. So here are the five solas in the succinct statement. You can write this down. The gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Scripture alone, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So, the five solas in a succinct statement the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Scripture alone, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And today, the sola that we will be studying is sola scriptura, or we are saved by Scripture alone. Now, this is, this is such a passion for me, okay? And I'm sure most of the people at Central could tell you this is probably the, the thing that I'm most passionate about um, in, in teaching and preaching is, is the Bible, is reading Scripture, loving Scripture, knowing Scripture, following Scripture. I say if I could just give my whole life so that the people of Central Baptist would, would know Christ through his scriptures and obey him, I would be happy. You know, I'm sure every, every pastor, every Christian leader has his like real passion, but this, this is the one for me. To stand on scripture alone, to know scripture, and to be faithful to it. So I'm so thankful and honored to be able to take on this sola today. Let me give you a, a quick roadmap of where we're going today, okay? We're going to answer four questions. Number one, first question is, what do we mean by sola scriptura? We're going to define that, make sure that's clear up front. What do we mean by sola scriptura? Secondly, why do we believe in scripture alone? Why do we believe this? Thirdly, why do we believe that Scripture is the Word of God? Why do we believe that? What warrants such a claim to hold the Bible up and say, this book alone is the Word of God? 
pretty exclusive to say something like that. And number four, the fourth question is now what? What do we do about it? So what do we mean by sola scriptura? Why do we believe in scripture alone? Thirdly, why do we believe the Bible is the word of God? Number four, now what? What do we do about it? So my desire, my prayer is that I would be able to stoke the flames or start a fire in you. If you don't believe the scripture is the word of God, that after today you will have no other choice than to believe that. If you do believe it, that I would just be able to fan that into a roaring blaze, that you would leave here with a fresh and a strong and a passionate, unwavering, enduring conviction that the Bible is God's word and that's what we stand on. We stand on it. So question number one today, what do we mean by sola scriptura? We mean that the Bible alone is the final authority for what we believe. This is what sola scriptura is all about. The Bible alone is the final authority for what we believe as Christians. The Bible alone is the final authority for what we believe. Very simple. So the Bible stands above all other books, above every other human being, every institution. The Bible even stands above the church. Because the Bible created the church. God created the church through the word. That's how we're born again, through the living word of God. You don't have the Bible, you don't have the church. So the Bible takes precedent. It's the final authority. It's the most important thing. We submit to the Bible. The Bible does not submit to us. It is the word of God. And that leads right into the next question. Why? Why do we say that the Bible alone is the final authority for faith and practice? And the answer is because the Bible is the very Word of God. Why do we stand on the Bible? It's the Word of God. There's no better place to stand. Remember what Jesus said? Take my words, build your life upon them. You're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the storms came and the floods rose and beat against the house, but the house stood firm. Why? They built it on the rock. They built it on the words of Christ. Scripture alone is the word of God. Martin Luther, one of the the primary or chief reformers back in the 1600s, believed this and he stood on it. If you remember the story back in 1521, he was called in by the Roman emperor to a trial and the emperor promised him if you will come to this trial uh, you know I'm not going to pull any I'm not going to put you to death on the spot okay which right away Luther knew that this was serious business the guy says hey you got to come to this trial we we demand it but you know we're we're not saying we're going to kill you right off the bat (laughs) so Luther shows up at the trial He walks in the room and they've got all of these books that he had written stacked up on the table. And the question was very simple. It's a yes or no answer. They're like, hey, did you write these books? Yes. Do you believe these books? Yes or no. (laughs) Because in the books, in the writings of Martin Luther, he had expounded on Scripture. 
And he had used the Bible to point out uh, things that the, that the church was doing that were unbiblical. They were teaching a gospel that wasn't the gospel of Scripture. And so his writings were there to take Scripture alone as his final authority and to correct the, 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 the waywardness of the church, the errors of the church. And so they asked Martin Luther, do you believe these? you believe the things you wrote in this book? Yes or no? And he, he's just shaking in his boots. And he said, let me think about it. <laughs> so he said, let me come back. And so they, they gave him 24 hours to think about it. He comes back next day, same time, stood in front of his books. They're like, all right, what do you say? Do you believe in your writings or not? Do you recant or do you stand? And this is what he said. Unless... I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Hear that scripture, scripture, the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. There he was. That's that is guys leave with that picture just burned in your memory. This guy standing there with his books that were based on scripture. And he said, hey, my conscience is captive to the word of God. That's what it means to stand on scripture alone. When you're faced with a life and death situation. You say, no, this is this is it. This is where I stand. This is what I believe. This is what I'm convictional about. This is what I'm going to give my life for. That's what it means. To stand on scripture alone. That is that is just a perfect picture of it. So Luther believed that the scriptures were the word of God. Again, why do we believe or why do we, yeah, why do we believe in sola scriptura? Why do we stand on scripture? Because it's the word of God. Luther believed that. But now we need to answer the question, why do we? Why do we believe it? This is the, 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 main, the main body of of information that we'll be covering today. So um, just want to give you a heads up about that. So we believe the Bible is the word of God. And we have quite a few reasons here, six or seven reasons of, of internal evidence. We're also going to look at some external evidence. Okay. So we have internal reasons or we look into the Bible and we see, wow, you see, this book is unique. This book is special. There are good reasons to believe that the Bible is the Word of God based on the Bible itself. And there's also exter external evidence as well. So, we have our Bibles open to Psalm 19. We're going to see several reasons. I, again, I believe there's seven or eight reasons here why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And number reasons one and two are going to come together. 
The first two reasons why we believe the Bible is the Word of God is because this is the testimony and the soul-satisfying effect of Scripture. We believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible bears witness that it is the Word of God. If you look in the pages of Scripture, you're going to see that the Bible claims to be the Word of God, but it not only claims that, it has a soul-satisfying effect. In other words, it backs up the claims. It's one thing to claim that a book is the Word of God, but if it cannot deliver, if it cannot produce the results that only God can, then that book is not the Word of God. However, the Bible, when it claims to be the Word of God, it delivers in such a powerful and undeniable way that we have to be convinced and come to the conclusion, surely this is the very Word of God. Where does the Bible say that it is, in fact, the Word of God? Look at Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. There it is right there. The law of the Lord. The Hebrew word there is the Torah of Yahweh or, or the, the, the law of Yahweh. The Torah referred to the first five books in the Old Testament, the writings of Moses. So in this psalm, David, the writer, is bearing witness that the Torah of Yahweh, this is the word or the law of Yahweh, it's perfect. Look at what it goes on to say. The testimony of the Lord is sure. This is not the testimony of man that we're talking about here. This is the testimony of the Lord. This is his testimony. He's taking the witness stand. This is what he has said. The precepts of the Lord, verse 8. The precepts of who? The precepts of man? No, the precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord, verse 8. The commandment of the Lord. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord. So the Bible is claiming here to be the word of God. A a parallel verse in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there now. Most of you probably know it. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, Scripture comes from God. It is God-inspired. It came from Him. So the testimony of Scripture is that Scripture is the testimony of God. If you look into the Bible, what does the Bible say about itself? The Bible claims to be the word of God. And it delivers on that claim. It makes good on that promise. Look in Psalm 19, verse 7 again. What does it do? It revives the soul. Sam talked today about just being broken, being desperate, being lonely. But what did the word of God do? What did the gospel do in his life? It changed his life. It revived his destitute soul. Any Christian in the house can tell you that the Bible again and again has picked them up off the floor. It has lifted them from the pit of Sheol. It has brought them from death to life. It restores. 
Look at what else it does in verse 7. It makes wise the simple. The word simple means foolish. The claim here is that it can make a foolish person wise. Have you ever seen a foolish child? He just keeps running and getting into trouble. And you tell him, no, no, no. And he just keeps going back and doing the same thing. And you, and you think to yourself, there's no hope for that kid. Yes, there is. <laughs> there's one hope for that kid. <laughs> the Word of God makes the foolish wise. Hey, as parents, there comes a point where you're like, I, 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 I guess I better start doing some family devotions here. You were being lazy, but your kid keeps giving you a really hard time every day. And you're like, there's no hope for this kid. And the Holy Spirit goes, yes, there is. There's one hope for that kid. It is the word. And you haven't been teaching that kid. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. Let me get the Bible out. Come here. <laughs> you sit down. We're going to talk. Yes, that's me. That's my story. I know what that's like. You look at kids, you're like, I give up. I have no, no. This isn't going to work out. I have no hope. Yes, you do. The Bible. Because it can make wise the simple. Look at what else. Verse 8. It rejoices the heart. Doesn't the Bible make you joyful? Doesn't it thrill your soul? Doesn't it bring you to tears? Doesn't it bring you to joy unspeakable? It gives us light. Look at verse 8. It enlightens the eyes. It gives you direction in the darkness. See, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to believe. Read the Bible. It's light. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path. Again, it delivers. See, I need wisdom. I need help. I need hope. You go to the Word, it delivers. Because it's alive. Because the author is alive. Because he's watching over you. And when you look into his Word, he rewards that. He blesses that. He gives you light in the darkness. I love verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now wait a minute. Why are we talking about the fear of the Lord? I thought we were talking about the Word. Verse 7, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. Number 9, the fear of the Lord. Verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true. So he goes, the precepts, the testimony, the law, the commandments. And then all of a sudden he throws in the fear of the Lord. Why? Why does he change it there? The fear of the Lord is not the word of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord is what the word produces. Okay, see, I believe what David is doing here in this psalm is he's telling you, these are all the reasons why you need to read the Bible. Well, it revives your heart. It makes you wise if you're simple. It rejoices your heart. It gives you light. It produces the fear of the Lord. This reverence, this sense of great awe of who God is. As you study the Bible, what happens? God reveals himself through this book. 
And he fills your heart with a sense of awe and reverence. Surely God is in this place and I did not know it. You say as you read the Bible. You connect with the living God and he makes you alive through his word, by his spirit and his power. You connect with God as you read the Bible. The fear of the Lord is clean. It produces this clean, this holy reverence. And it endures forever. Notice that. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This produces a sense of awe. And it renews that sense of awe over and over and over again. Because we need that. We need those reminders about who God is. We need those times to reconnect with God and be empowered all over again. The Bible does that for us. It delivers. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. What else does the Bible do? It warns us. Moreover, by your commandments, your servant is warned. And it leads you to the blessed life. In keeping them, there is great reward. The Bible warns you when you're getting off track. Don't go down that road. Come back to the ancient paths. Come back to the ways and the word of the Lord. It's no wonder that that David says in verse 10, more to be desired are they, the rules of the Lord, that are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Taste and see that the Lord is good, he says. What do you spend all your time thinking about? What do you want out of life? Are you coveting the things of this world? Or do you believe this scripture that says more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, all the riches, anything that this world has to offer, you know what's far better? The word of God. It's sweeter than the drippings of the honey from the honeycomb. So don't waste your time seeking satisfaction, pursuing the things of this world to meet the desire of your heart to satisfy your soul. The testimony of the Lord is soul satisfying. Someone might object and say, well, you you can't look at the Bible. I mean, of course the Bible claims to be the Word of God. That doesn't mean that it is the Word of God. No, again, the Bible is not just claiming to be the word. It's, it's backing up that, that claim. If I wanted to prove to you that, that a well had refreshing, clear, cold, pure water, what would I do? I could, I could point to the well and go, boy, there's good water in that well. And you say, oh yeah, sure there is. But if I can dip the, the bucket into the well... And I can pull up the water that satisfies you. You have to say, you have to agree. Wow, that, that is some, that's some really refreshing, pure, cold. That's the best water I've ever tasted. 
You see what I'm saying about the Bible? I'm not just saying the Bible's a well. I'm saying, taste and see. Take a drink. He who drinks from these waters will never thirst again. You will know that it is the word of God when you drink from the well. So there's internal evidence that the Bible is true. We see that in Psalm 19. David certainly believed it true, and he experienced the power and the benefits and the blessings of it. How else do we know the Bible is true? Well, the Bible is prophetic in nature. We're moving on to the next point here. The Bible is prophetic in nature. The Bible comes from a source that transcends time. Look, if the Bible comes from a source that transcends time, you have to believe it's the Word of God. Human beings are stuck in time, which means that we do not know the future. Yeah, we can guess. The Royals are going to win the World Series. We might be right. We're probably not. This year, I don't know. Anyway, the point is, hey, we don't know the future. But the Bible prophesies the future accurately with spot on convicting accuracy. This is seen no better than in all of the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would live a a perfect life. He would suffer and be pierced and nailed to a tree. Cursed as anyone who is hung on a tree. He would be hung on that tree as a curse. He would die. He would be buried. He would be raised again. God would not leave his soul in shield. God would not leave his body in the tomb to go through corruption or to rot and decay, God was going to raise him from the dead, according to Psalm 16. How did those guys who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, how did they know those things with such accuracy? We studied on Christmas Day, uh, where, where was Jesus born? He was born in the city of David, in the city of Bethlehem. The only reason that he was born there is because there was a census that the the Roman emperor said that everybody has to go back to his hometown. So there's this this peasant guy named Joseph. He's betrothed to a a lady named Mary. She claims that she was uh, impregnated, not by a human being, but by God himself. Uh, They're betrothed to be married. They're living in Nazareth. But because of the Roman emperor's decree, Joseph has to go back to his hometown, which just happens to be what? The city of David. So here's the, uh, Joseph and Mary, and they're, and they're working their way back to Bethlehem from Nazareth, 70 miles, with uh, his wife, who's nine months pregnant. Very inconvenient, very hard. They make it to Bethlehem just in the nick of time for Mary to give birth to Jesus. Not in, a, not in the inn. There's no room left in the inn. The city's crowded because of the census. But there is a, there's a manger, a, a stable. 
they make it into the town in just enough time. Not for Joseph to go to one of his family members' homes. Hey, my wife's about to have a baby. Can we maybe have it in your living room? They make it to Bethlehem in just the nick of time for them to have the baby in a barn. That's cutting it close. Joseph and Mary probably didn't have that prophecy on their minds when they were going from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They didn't leave a month early going, hey, you're going to have the Messiah. We better go to Bethlehem now so we get there on time. No, the only reason they're going back there is because the the king of the world, the Roman emperor, said, you got to go. So they go and they make it back just in time. And sure enough, the Christ happens to be born in the city of David, just like God said in the prophet Micah, hundreds of years beforehand. That happens over and over and time and time again in the life of Jesus to the point that if you're willing to be intellectually honest, you have to admit that the Bible is prophetic in nature. Therefore, it has to be of supernatural origin because no human being can tell the future the way that the Bible does. But because the Bible has prophecy after prophecy that's just spot on in accuracy, you know that the author transcends time. We believe the Bible because it's prophetic in nature. We believe the Bible because of the continuity of the Bible. Number four, the continuity of the Bible. Sam mentioned this today. He said, you know, the Bible is... There's one narrative running through the entire book. There's one story that's being developed book by book. You have to understand the Bible is not just one book, right? It's a collection of how many books? 66 books written over a time period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And yet there's one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. There's one story that's being unpacked through that. One storyline developing throughout the whole Bible in such a way that there is one author who knew the end from the beginning. How can that be? How can 40 different guys write a book on three different continents over 1,500 years and develop one story as if they knew the end from the beginning? The continuity of the Bible. How about the congruity of the Bible? Number five, the congruity of the Bible. Meaning the Bible is in agreement with itself. Its teachings are harmonious and they never contradict each other. Anybody who says, hey, the Bible is filled with contradictions, hand them your Bible and say, show me one. Show me, show me the contradictions. Show me the problems. Show me the errors. The Bible is inerrant. It is congruous. It is in agreement with itself. It corresponds to itself. It cross-references with itself. Let me give you number six here. Here is a powerful reason to believe in the Bible and that it is the word of God. Number six, Jesus believed that the Bible was the word of God. 
If you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then you believe the same thing that Jesus believed about it. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That should sound familiar. This is the scripture that Jesus quoted when he was fasting in the desert and the devil was attacking him. And Jesus was defending himself with with the word of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's quoting scripture. And he's saying, I'm not going to turn these stones to bread. I'm not going to give in to this temptation. But I'm going to hold fast to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The source of Scripture is the mouth of God, Jesus said. In Luke 24, verse 44, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Luke 24, 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus said everything written about me in the law, the Psalms and the prophets had to be fulfilled. Why was Jesus so intent on fulfilling everything that was written about him in the law, the prophets and the Psalms? What was written down in the law and the prophets of the Psalms? It is the promises of God. And Jesus said, those promises must be fulfilled. He believed that they were the word of God. Jesus believed that the the writings, the the scriptures, the, the, the Psalms, the law of Moses and the prophets, he believed that these things were the word of God. But why should we believe in Jesus? Because Jesus died and rose again according to the scriptures. Jesus believed that the scriptures were the word of God. And Jesus proved that they are the word of God by dying and rising again according to the scriptures. Do you you see that? He said, you know, the law of Moses, uh, the Psalms, the prophets, all of that had to be fulfilled. All of it had to come true. I came on a mission to fulfill those things. And by dying on the cross and by fulfilling those words, he proved that it was the word of God. Who else could die and rise from the dead? You want proof, empirical evidence that something is true? Prophesy that a man would die and rise again from the dead. And when that comes true, you know the supernatural power and authority behind it. Last, last reason to believe the Bible is true, and, and there are many others, by the way, but I, I chose these seven. Um, the Bible is a unique message of salvation by grace. 
The message of salvation in the Bible is unique. In a world of religions, the Bible stands out because the Bible teaches that you can only be saved by grace. You cannot add anything to God's plan of salvation. God doesn't need your help. In fact, you can't help yourself in this regard. You have to rely on the grace of God alone. See, no man would ever write a book like the Bible. I think that's the point of the message of grace alone. You say, how does the message of grace alone prove that the Bible is true? Well, I I would say that why would any human being write a book like the Bible? On the day that I became a Christian, I, I held a Bible in my hand and I said, God, I believe that you're God. I know that you're God. I know that you're not my God because I was not yet a believer. I said, but no man would write a book like this. Because this book portrays me and my sin accurately. It is humbling. Proud human beings don't write humbling books like the Bible. The Bible says you are evil. You are wretched. There is nothing that you can do to please God. You deserve to be in the fiery pits of hell forever. And there's nothing you can do to rescue yourself. Your only hope is that God would, in his mercy, do something so kind as to condescend and come down from heaven and to pay the death penalty for you. And that's exactly what he did. That's a unique message. And it's not a message that human beings would think up on their own. Because we like to believe that we're good and that we can do things and that God should be proud of us. When the truth is, he's not proud at all of us. In fact, he's enraged by our sin. And yet he's willing to forgive our sin because of Christ. That's that's not a book that a human being would think to write. That's internal evidence. All of these things are internally present in the Bible. Again, when we drop our bucket down into the well of the Bible, these are the things that come up. And we take a drink of that. We go, that is refreshing and wonderful and amazing. The proof is in the pudding. (laughs) The water is in the well. When we take a drink, we can taste and see that the Lord is good, that the Bible is truly the word of God. What about external evidence? Three quick things. Number one, the Bible is historically accurate. Why should we believe the Bible? External evidence, the Bible is historically and archaeologically accurate. History and archaeological evidence support the Bible. I'll give you one book on this subject. It's called Unearthing the Bible. Unearthing the Bible. If you want historical and archaeological evidence of the Bible's veracity or the trustworthiness of the Bible. You could read a book like Unearthing the Bible. Brief description of that book. In Unearthing the Bible, Dr. Titus Kennedy presents 101 objects 
that provide compelling evidence for the historical reliability of Scripture from the dawn of civilization through the early church. Gathered from more than 50 museums, private collections, and archaeological sites, these pieces not only reinforce the reliability of the biblical narratives, but also provide rich cultural insights into the ancient world. There are many books like this. This is just one example. If you want to study the the history and the archaeological evidence of the Bible, it is fascinating. It is amazing and wonderful. We don't have time for it today, but that is a source that you could go to to see that. Number two, external evidence. The Bible is true to life. Why should you believe the Bible? Because the Bible is true to life. The world makes the most sense when you have a biblical worldview. The Bible gives the best answers to the big questions of life. For instance, the big questions of life, what are they? Who are we? How did we get here? What is our purpose? What is wrong with the world? And is there any hope? And the Bible gives the most satisfying and comprehensive answers to those questions. Who are we? We're human beings made in the image of God. That explains a lot of like our creativity and, and just, the, just the marvel that human beings are. We're made in the image of God. How do we get here? We were created. We didn't just appear out of nowhere. We didn't create ourselves. We're not the product of evolution. We were created by God. What is our purpose? We're created to know God and glorify Him. That is a great purpose. That is an awesome purpose, to be connected to our Creator and to obey Him and glorify Him. What is wrong with the world? Mankind rebelled against God. And is there any hope for the future? Yes, God made a way for us to be forgiven and restored. The five big questions that everybody needs to answer, every human being wrestles with, and the Bible gives the best answers for those questions. The Bible is true to life. Thirdly, the Bible is powerful and it changes lives. How do you know the Bible is true? Because it changes people's lives. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. People come to faith. People are changed. People are born again as they hear the word of God. As they hear the word of God proclaimed by the Spirit's power, the Spirit of God works the word into their hearts and changes them and makes them new. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Acts 16 verses 4 and 5. Do you remember the story about Lydia? It says, one who heard us was a, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Again, there was a powerful transformation in Lydia's life. As the word of God was preached, as Paul was preaching the word, the Lord worked through the words of Paul by his spirit to open her heart and to believe. And he changed her life and she wanted to be baptized. See, God stands behind the Bible. 
And when the Bible is being proclaimed, God confirms it in the hearts of his people. To be honest, that's the only reason any of us believe in the Bible at all. It's because of God. We can't, I can't convince you that the Bible's true. I can't give you a hundred reasons and, 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 you know, turn the lights on. It has to be God who says, who opens your heart to believe the scriptures. It has to be God to, to show you that, you know what? This book really is different. This, this is really not from uh, uh, human authors in, in, the, in the sense that ultimately it comes from God. God has to confirm that in your hearts. Okay, let's move on to our final section here. What do we do about it? So sola scriptura, the Bible is our final authority. Why is it our final authority? Because it is the word of God. Why should we believe in the Bible? Because of the internal and the external evidence. And ultimately because God has just opened our hearts to believe it. God has done a miracle in our lives so that we believe and understand that it's his word. We ultimately depend on him for that. So now what do we do about it? Well, if the Bible truly is the word of God, brothers and sisters, let's start by what? <coughs> Reading it. Uh, we had, a, we had a, a saying in my church growing up. Let us read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. They said it like every Sunday. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. As believers, we feast on the word of God. We read it. We mark it up. We learn it, we, we, we seek to understand it, and we inner, inwardly digest it. We feed on it until it produces change in us, and it works its way into us. So, practically speaking, how do you do that? Let's just get really practical as we finish our time. Number one, I'm going to give you these rapid fire and these are points that if I was in a classroom, students would be raising their hands and saying, no, I don't know if I agree with that. And I do things differently. And it's like, OK, that's fine. All right. But I'm just going to give it to you straightforward. And if I were you, this is what I would do. <laughs> OK, number one, learn herme hermeneutics. How do you spell hermeneutics? H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. What is that? It's the science of studying the Bible. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, hey, you need to read your Bibles. It's another thing to have the tools that you need and the skill that you need and the training that you need to dig into this book. Okay, the book, the Bible is written 2,000 plus years ago, right? So being a book of ancient literature, it takes certain kinds of skills and tools to dig into it. Imagine you're like uh, an archaeologist and you have to dig. You, have, you need the right tools. So hermeneutics are those tools. You need a class in hermeneutics. Read a book. Ask somebody in the church who knows how to read the Bible to sit down with you and start teaching you. How do you dig into this book? Okay, a lot of people get discouraged when they try to read the Bible. They don't have any kind of hermeneutical tools. And so they start reading. They go, I don't get it. Okay, you need help. You need help to read the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. That's being humble and saying, I want to read this. I want to understand this. I believe this is the word of God. I know that I should crave this like a newborn infant craves its mother's milk, but I need help. You need hermeneutical tools. Get a book on hermeneutics if you want. That will be helpful. Number two, sacrifice your time. 
If you're going to read the Bible, sacrifice your time. I'm going to say an hour a day. Again, you can argue the point. Give an hour of the day to God to read his word. Number three, prioritize the word in your day. Do it first thing in the morning. I got to get up for work at 6 a.m. Well, then get up at five so you can have an hour to read the Bible. That would be my loving advice to you. Sacrifice your time and prioritize the word in your day. Do it first thing in the morning. Number four, have a weekly reading plan from all over in the scripture. If I were you, I would not get up and just try to read through the Gospel of Matthew every single day. I might do that a couple days a week, but a couple days a week I want to be in the Old Testament as well. And then I encourage you to read in the Psalms as well, because the Psalms are all about the prayers of the saints. If you want to know how to pray and connect with God and be raw and emotional and vulnerable with God, then read the Psalms. So read from all over in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and Psalms. You need a reading plan. A couple days a week, I'm going to read in the Old Testament. A couple days a week, New Testament, um, book of Psalms. Whatever your reading plan is, you need to work on your plan, but you need a plan. It's bad to wake up early in the morning without a plan. You sit there and you go, what am I going to read today? I don't know. I don't feel like reading anything. Well, maybe I won't. <laughs> or you, start, you try to start reading. And you're like, man, this, this isn't working. Okay, but if you have a plan and you review it the night before, then you can, you can start with that momentum going into the morning. I know exactly what I'm going to do. You can even have your Bible open on the table waiting for you. Need a plan. Number five, do something to warm up. Here are different warm-up exercises I do. Don't, in other words, don't just read the Bible and say, okay, I have to read six, six chapters today for my Bible reading plan so I can read the whole Bible in a month. Warm up, okay? Just like if you're going to exercise, you've got to warm up. Here are some good warm-up exercises. Number one, writing out Scripture by hand. Half the time you're asleep and groggy and you don't feel good that morning when you wake up and you're thinking about yourself, just start writing out the scripture by hand. Just the discipline of making your body do something and process the scripture. It's a good warm-up activity. Second warm-up activity, work on scripture memory. Reading the same verse over and over again, committing it to memory. Just do it for 15 minutes before you ever start reading the Bible for the day. Work on your scripture memory. It's a good warm-up. It'll start getting you engaged with the scripture. As you do that same verse over and over again and commit it to memory, you'll start seeing all kinds of things in that verse that you've never seen before because you're spending time. God will start to wake up your soul as you do that, as you're warming up. Another warm-up activity, listen to two or three worship songs. Before you start your, your big chunk of Bible study that day, listen to a couple worship songs. It'll just begin to kind of wake you up to who God is. Get you going. A couple more warm-ups. You can read a good book, which is like pre-digested food. Somebody, else, somebody else's Bible study, so to speak, but they're writing a book on discipleship, and you start reading that book, and it starts getting your wheels turning. It starts getting you excited about who God is and being a Christian. <laughs> so good books are good warm-ups. Another thing you can do is listen to a sermon. And, and that's one thing I, I do about every week is just listen to a sermon. I don't, I don't even have a quote-unquote Bible study. I just listen to a really good sermon. So again, just keep it changing up. Change it up. Change it up. 
So number four, we had the weekly reading plan. Number five, do something to warm up. Then we had some examples of warming up. Number six, don't stop seeking the Lord until you have a breakthrough. Don't stop seeking until you have that breakthrough. Second Peter 1.19 says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's 2 Peter 1.19. What's Peter saying here? He's saying, pay attention to the prophetic scriptures. Read your Bible. They're like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I believe what he's doing there is he's, he's painting a picture of a sunrise. He's saying, read the scriptures until the sun rises in your hearts. Until you see who God is that day. Until you connect with God. Until your soul wakes up for God. Until your lamp is trimmed and the, lamp, the light is burning inside you. Read the scriptures until you have that breakthrough with God. If you haven't connected with God and you still feel dry in your quiet time, keep going. Seek the Lord until you know that you've connected with him and he's given you the bread of life for the day. I have a couple more, but I'm just going to move on. That's enough to get you going. Maybe the last thing I would say with uh, reading the Bible in the morning and you pray until you have that breakthrough is don't spend your whole time reading scripture in the mornings. For instance, if you have a warm up exercise for 15 minutes and then you study the word for 30 minutes, take that last 15 minutes to meditate on the word. Go back through what you've seen in scripture and begin to meditate on it and think about it and concentrate on it and store it up in your hearts. And it's during that time of meditation when you will connect with God in a powerful way. If you're reading and reading and reading the whole time because you feel like you have to finish your Bible reading plan for the day, okay, just be careful that you're not reading the whole time and not really connecting with God. You'd be far better off to read for 30 minutes, spend that last 15 minutes and encounter God and be empowered by him through his word and then read the rest of your Bible reading plan at lunchtime or right before you go to bed. But the important thing about that morning time is that you connect with God. That's the goal. You say, how does that go back to sola scriptura? Because in order to stand on the word of God, you have to know the word of God and you have to be empowered by God. You cannot stand on Scripture alone if you don't read and know and experience the power of the Scriptures. I want to go back to that opening scene that we had today with Martin Luther standing before the the courts. Do you remember that? There he is standing before the emperor, the, Ro- the, holy, the holy Roman em- emperor. He's like, do you recant of these things or not? Thank God Ro- Martin Luther said, I will not recant. I 
stand on Scripture alone. Right? Thank God he said that. What would have happened if Martin Luther didn't stand that day? What would have happened if Martin Luther would have recanted? Could God have raised someone up in his place? Yes, but think about it. Martin Luther is one of the greatest reformers that we know. He's probably one of the reasons that we're all sitting here today studying the Bible and standing on Scripture alone. What would have happened if Martin Luther would have dropped the ball that day, if he would have recanted, if he would have turned back on his convictions? It would have been a disaster, not just for Martin Luther, but for all those people who were, who were hanging on, not his words, but the word of God that he was teaching. Do you see how important it is to stand on Scripture alone? People are watching. The world is watching. Your children are watching. Your church is watching. You must stand on the word of God. It would have been a disaster for Martin Luther if he did not stand that day. And it will be a disaster for us if we do not stand on the word of God. We must stand on scripture alone. We must stand. Your trials might not look like Martin Luther, right? You might not be standing for the president of the United States. or It might not feel like it is life and death. But brothers and sisters, it is. Sola Scriptura is a matter of life and death. What you believe about the Bible is a matter of life and death. If you are here today and you do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you do not believe in God. You could say, no, I believe in God. I don't have to believe in the Bible. False. You must believe in the Word of God if you believe in the God of the Word. They are inseparable. These are His promises. They are not of human interpretation or of human origin. They are of divine origin. He has given us plenty of evidence inside of the Bible and outside of the Bible. You must commit your life to standing in Scripture alone. If you're not in Christ today, if you're not a believer in Christ today, I urge you. Stand. Take a stand. Anything else you're standing on is going to be washed away when the storms of life come and they hit. They're, you're going to wash away your foundation. You have to stand on the rock. You have to stand on the word of God. Church, sola scriptura is a matter of life and death. I just want to know if you're passionate about this. If you're passionate about this, then... Give your life to reading, marking, learning, and inwardly digesting the Word of God so that you may obey the Word of God at all costs and stand on Scripture alone. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your Word. I pray that you would bear witness now to the power of of the word. I pray that you would bear witness to the veracity of the scriptures, the, of the origin and the divine authorship of the scriptures, God, that you would bear witness in the hearts and the souls of everyone in this room, God, that the Bible is not uh, a book of man. It is, it is the word of God. It is different. It is in a class of its own. There is no book in this world that compares with the Bible. It is the final authority for us as believers. 
we are here today because the Bible is true. We're Christians today because the Bible is true. We are living proof that the Bible is the living word of God. We thank you. We praise you for that. God, stoke the fires in our souls. God, to love your word. God, we doubt your word. There are some here today that, that, that are very likely doubting that the Bible is the word of God. And God, we all doubt it every single day that we step off the path. But the Bible warns us, come back, come back to the path. The Bible keeps us on track. The Bible leads us into the blessed life. God, I long for that for your people. I long for your people to wake up in the mornings and to look forward to their Bible studies because they know that it's going to be a time of connecting with you. And God, that they would devote the time and the energy and they would make the sacrifices, God, to know you and your word. God, physicians study night and day so that they can understand the body and help people during a lifetime that will only last 70 years. God, how much more should Christians study the Bible so that we can help people with their souls that will last eternity? Help us, Lord. Help us lay the weight of this on us today and help us to take a stand like Martin Luther did, God, on Sola Scriptura. In Jesus' name, amen.